The scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 5 through 17. When no bush of the field was yet in, in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to the water, to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and Onk stone are there. This, the name of the second river is Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put, in him the, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day, in the day you shall eat it, you shall surely die. The word of the Lord. Morning. So my name's Dan. I'm on the leadership team here at Trailhead Church. Um, Steve Mizell, our lead pastor, uh, we've given him a, a break, and so he's uh, taking the day off today. And I'll be um, I'll be uh, presenting the the word this morning, the sermon. Let me pray for us before we we dig into scripture this morning. Uh, Father, I thank you for this awesome day that you've given us. Um, I thank you that you have brought us together as family and as a church body, um, that we can worship and we can um, talk about you and learn about you. So God, I ask for your help this morning in presenting your word, that I would be faithful in declaring your gospel, inviting people into um, good relationship with you. And God, I also want to pray for um, our brothers and sisters here this morning that, God, as we uh, look at this weekend as a time to remember those that have gone on before us, to remember those that sacrificed their life uh, for us, as we remember that on Memorial Day, uh, Memorial Day weekend. Lord, I ask that you would comfort those um, that have lost a loved one, that you would just give them peace, and that the church would love them well also, God. Uh, so we thank you for them. We thank you for their sacrifice. Yeah, we thank you for your sacrifice in dying for us. And we also pray, Lord, for the victims uh, of the tornado in Oklahoma, God, that you would just um, Lord, supply their needs, Lord, for those that are grieving, that you would comfort them, and uh, you would strengthen your church to love and serve uh, those people with need there in Oklahoma. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this morning, we're on the second week of our new series called The Shadows of Christ. And in the series, what we're doing is looking at how the message of Christ is proclaimed in the Old Testament through the events, people, and things there in the Old Testament. Uh, the message is one of redemption and of restoration that would be accomplished by our hero, hero of the story, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the title of our sermon this morning is The Invitation 
to shalom. And as I say that, some of you may be wondering, what, what is shalom? What is, he, what is he talking about? That's not a, a word in our, our normal vocabulary for most of us. Um, is that a place somewhere in some far-off country, or is that a winter Olympic event that I don't know about? Um, now shalom is a Hebrew word. And the Old Testament, the original language that the Old Testament was written in was, was Hebrew. And this word uh, shalom is a word that gets translated into English as peace. We commonly re- translate it as peace. Now, while that translation is, uh, isn't inaccurate, that is a component, um, it's not the complete picture of what shalom means. So the word shalom also means it means prosperity, its connotations of welfare, welfare, integrity, um, joy, contentment, purpose, and uh, ironically enough, as I said, that peace doesn't isn't quite the complete um, meaning of the word shalom. Completeness is actually um, what shalom means. So we're looking at the center of this word means complete, completeness or wholeness. Um, so I want to read a quote to you from theologian Cornelius Plantinga. Uh, he phrased it very beautifully, I think. He says, The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation, in justice, fulfillment, and delight, is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace, peace of mind, or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So the point here is that while shalom does mean peace, that is part of it, Uh, It's so much richer than what we think of when we think of peace or maybe the absence of conflict. There's so much more to that. And what I hope that as you you look at the other words um, that represent what shalom is, I hope that there's a positive connotation there, that you think those are all things that I, I want. Those are all things that I want to experience in life. I want shalom. I want purpose. I want welfare. I want joy. I want wholeness. And we all get hints of this now. We all get moments of this kind of wholeness in our relationships and in, in our life. But the reality is, is that we don't get it completely. That we do experience conflict. We do experience struggle. We do sometimes question our purpose. And shalom seems somewhat impossible to obtain because we only get small moments of it. Um, and we long for it. There's something in us that we long for that peace. We long for shalom. Now, our scripture passage this morning uh, comes from the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And uh, the first two chapters here are communicating the creation account. And it's easy to get hung up on how does, how does our faith, how does scripture, um, how does that fit with, with science um, and what uh, you know, biology tells us, what all the scientists tell us about how, why we're here, how we came about. Um, there can be lots of, lots of controversy there, I know. And 
I do want to say we're not going there this morning. If you do have those questions, I want to encourage you to continue to explore that. I do believe the Bible, our faith and science do fit together. Um, so continue to explore that, but that's not where we're going this morning. Where we're going this morning is that I believe this is a story that's meant to teach us and answer the question, who is God and what is his relationship to us? Who is God and what is his relationship to us? And when we read scripture, we need to be thinking about, okay, who was the original audience? Who were the first ones to actually read this text, to read it in the original Hebrew? So this book was written by, by Moses. You guys may recognize that name, you know, the, uh, the Charlton Heston movie, uh, The Ten Commandments, you know, Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt, and they cross, God splits the parts of the Red Sea, and they walk through. Um, this is, that's Moses, okay? And Moses, Moses is the one that we believe authored the book of Genesis. And so the people, the first audience receiving this book, were the ones that had just been led out of slavery in Egypt. That they had been there for over 400 years, with the Egyptians. And the Egyptians had many gods. It was a polytheistic culture. And this is the gods that the Israelites were aware of, the gods that the Egyptians had worshipped. But they weren't really gods at all, but it was what they had created and what they had worshipped. So the book of Genesis was essentially communicating, God communicating to his people who he was, that there was one God, and that he stood above creation, and that he created mankind as his children, not as slaves. It's his children. We see here in the story of creation that God takes man and he forms him personally forms him and breathes his breath into him to create life. So that is his relationship to us. In verse 7, it talks about that in our passage that we see God as a craftsman. that He creates the first human out of dust and breathes into him. In verse 8, we see God as a gardener and a provider, planting the Garden of Eden for his creation, for Adam and for Eve. And this, and we can't, um, well, we have an image here. I'm sure this pales in comparison to what it was actually like um, to be there in the garden, to see the beauty, to experience the peace that was there, the harmony that was there, the provision that was there. Um, I don't believe we have a full concept of what that was even, was even like. It was a place of peace and security and prosperity passage talks about rivers that flowed through it, and it was rich in life, in abundance, and full of resources for the humans, for Adam and Eve, the ones that God created. Then we see that God gave Adam a purpose. Adam and Eve had the purpose of being stewards, to cultivate what God had created, to cultivate the garden that he had placed them in. So he had given them a job from the beginning, a job to take care of this, to steward it, to expand it, 
to use their cognitive abilities, to use all of the, the skills and the talents that he had created them with, to develop those and take care and to expand, create. So Adam had a job, and his job was as a gardener, cultivator, or a farmer, you might say. So then we see that God gave Adam a companion. He saw that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, and so God made Eve. And Eve was the perfect companion for Adam, perfect in every way for him. And Genesis 2.25 tells us that they were, they were naked and not ashamed. And that's describing how their relationship was one of complete intimacy and joy, without shame. This was, God called them to create, continue to be fruitful, to multiply, to create more life and to take care of, of the garden that they have been placed in. This was a mandate to carry forward a civilization without greed, without malice or envy, uh, in perfect harmony with everything around them. The resources were plenty. War was unnecessary. This was a place in the time of complete shalom, a complete wholeness and fullness. This was the people of God living in the land of God in the presence of God. Now we can look around and see, you know what, it's not like this anymore. Life isn't like that. We don't know what that kind of peace is like. We don't know what that kind of wholeness and creation is like. We can look around as we can see on the news. We can see destruction. We can see pain. We grieve. We see the brokenness that's around us around all of us. And we see that, you know what, things, we have this inner longing that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Things aren't, it just doesn't seem right. And we know that. So what happened? What happened to our shalom? Why is it not like it was in the Garden of Eden? You see, Adam and Eve, God's first humans that God had created, they were given an ability. They were given the ability to reject God's authority. They were given an ability to choose who they would serve, who they would believe, and who they would trust. And they were placed in the garden, the Garden of Eden, this beautiful place. They were placed there with, with only one rule. They had one rule. And that rule, as we see at the end of our passage today, was to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The, the garden was full of fruit. It was full of everything they needed to sustain them. And God said, the only thing, the only rule that I give to you is to not eat of this one tree. And it seems like a pretty simple rule. It seems maybe even a little, little silly. Like, why would God only give them, why would he say that? Why would he only put that in place uh, as a rule for them? But this rule communicates the singular law of Eden, the law that the truth of Eden, that God is God and we are not. 
God is God and we are not. And we see later in Genesis that in a tragic turn of events, um, Genesis tells us that the serpent, Satan, tempted Eve to eat the fruit that God had told them not to eat. She believed the lie that God was dishonest, that God wasn't uh, good, that he was holding something from them. And so Eve took the fruit, and she ate it, and she gave some to Adam, and he ate also. This was the choice that sent a ripple through all of creation. All of creation was affected by this choice. This wasn't just a choice about eating a piece of fruit. This was a choice about autonomy. Who would decide what is good for them, for God's people, God's creation? And Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to be the ones that would decide what is good and what is evil. And the consequence, as God had promised, was death. Sin had been introduced into the perfect creation. And shalom was lost. Shalom was broken. Because prior to the sin, there was harmony in all of man's relationships. There was complete harmony. Adam and Eve had shalom with God. They had shalom with each other. They had shalom with themselves and with creation. But these relationships were all broken by sin. These relationships were all broken by Adam and Eve's choice. They had chosen to reject God's authority and instead become his enemy. So first, our relationship with God was broken as they disobeyed God and chose to do things their own way. Also, the relationship with each other between Adam and Eve was broken. They were meant to be, to cooperate fully together with their ambitions fully satisfied, complete partnership, complete intimacy, affirmation, and admiration found fully satisfied in each other, that they were naked and not ashamed. And that ended. That ended. Scripture tells us that when they ate, their eyes were opened and they were both ashamed. And they made fig leaves. To, they took fig leaves to cover themselves because of their shame. And that while that relationship is broken, man and woman still desire, desperately desire one another. But we're no longer able to live in that kind of self, selflessness in that same mutuality. We as humans, we long for connection, but we're unable to fully obtain it as we settle for Facebook friendships, for shallow and self-centered relationships. The human relationship was created to experience mutual self-sacrifice, productivity, and joy. And now self-centeredness, competition for control, pain, and frustration are the norm. Next, our relationship with ourself, ourselves, was broken. So what do, I, what do I mean when I say our relationship with ourselves was broken? So we know that sin resulted in death, so our mortality. We die. Our physical bodies degrade. Disease and deformity entered the picture. Um, but we struggle with how we even view ourselves. 
There's an inner turmoil that happens within us. A turmoil of shame, a turmoil of depression. Um, Where we are intended to rest in God's identity is image bearers. Our identity is image bearers of God and is his children. We are intended to rest in that. But now instead we hustle for our worth through performance. We seek approval from others instead of recognizing our worth and who God says we are. And we're afraid to be authentic, afraid to be our true selves, because we're worried we may be rejected, people won't like us. And we seek comfort in food, sex, drugs, whatever else we can find that will distract us from the pain. So our relationship with ourself, ourselves was broken. Next, our relationship with creation was broken as well. Um, Adam was a a gardener and a farmer. Uh, The land that was designed to respond and supply all of their needs now withholds and is fruitless. And we, in turn, abuse and destroy the land that we were supposed to be stewards of and care for. So if any of you have ever grown a garden, you know that, that it takes a lot of care and it's a lot of work. It's hard. It's hard work. There are weeds that come up. You have to make sure it gets plenty of water. Sometimes insects, pests come in, and they eat the fruit that it was supposed to bring forth. It's a struggle if you've ever grown a garden. Um, or I was talking to Kevin uh, this morning. As he's, a, he's a farmer. And just even the struggle to get the seed in the ground the past few weeks because the weather doesn't cooperate. Nature doesn't work with, with the plants. See, it wasn't like that in the garden. Our work the ground would respond to man. It would respond, and it was fruitful. So the curse of our sin wasn't that we didn't have work. The curse wasn't that God gave us work and makes us do work. The curse is that our work is fruitless. The curse is that our work is wrought with frustration and difficulty and challenge rather than cooperating nature and creation cooperating with us to produce so the problem is um, pervasive. It's everywhere. And we're unable to fix it. And what we need is a Savior, someone that can fix it for us. And uh, I want to share a story with you uh, this morning. Um, this was something that was in the news last fall. Um, it has to do with, uh, with a painting. Um, so this is a painting, a fresco painting, um, in Spanish, the, the translation, the English translation, the title is actually in Spanish, but I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it um, this morning. But the translation is Behold the Man. And uh, this picture is uh, over 100 years old. And the, the picture on the left there uh, was taken, I believe, about 10 years ago. And so you see a little bit more of a glimpse of what it was the original looked like. And over the past, uh, over the years, um, it has degraded. And you can see there's damage from, from moisture and from the elements. Um, so this picture is a, is a pale comparison to what the painting actually looked like originally. Well, there was um, a woman in the church, um, an elderly woman, that decided she would do the church a favor and bless, uh, bless the church by restoring this painting and by taking it upon herself um, to fix it. So she had good intentions, and she wanted to restore its, its beauty. Um, unfortunately, 
Um, this is what uh, this is what came out, and uh, yeah, so it doesn't quite look um, look like it used to. And uh, as I was searching for this online, um, some people had renamed it. Um, unfortunately, I'll behold the monkey instead of instead of behold the man. Um, but you can see this is a this someone trying to fix it actually made it much worse than it looked like in its original original beauty. And uh, while the, the news articles that I had read said the woman had good intentions, um, that she meant well, and I believe she did, um, but she was unable. She didn't have the, the skills, the ability to fix this properly, um, and she ended up marring it. And what's even funnier about this story is that um, she was initially apologetic and sorry that she had, had tried to do this, um, without permission. Um, but then after the news got out that this had happened, um, there was a, a swarm of people that wanted to go and, and see this, to see Behold the Monkey. And um, there were over 1,400 visitors in a matter of just, um, I believe, a week or two. And uh, when the woman that had done this painting um, was became aware of this, uh, aware of its popularity, um, she decided that uh, she should get compensated for the work that she had done, um, that she wanted to get get paid um, for this because it was drawing people to her her art. And I shared the story um, because I think it's parallel to our inability to fix the problem of sin. That even our best efforts can lead to greater distortion. The best efforts are often filled with selfishness, selfish motives. And the reality is that we can never restore the broken creation and experience the shalom that was in the Garden of Eden, not on our own. And while God had every right to wipe us out because of sin, he had every right to destroy Adam and Eve, that God would be perfect in his justice to have done that, he had a different, a different plan. See, we needed a Savior to fix it for us. And God promised one. I want to look this morning in Genesis 3. This is on page 3 of the Bibles in, in front of you there. Um, and this is the account after Adam and Eve had eaten of the fruit, and God is uh, addressing them and stating what the penalty, what the result of their sin, what the consequences would be. And here he's speaking to uh, the serpent, to Satan. Starting in verse 14, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, in between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So this is God's promise of a descendant from Eve that would bruise the serpent's head, and the serpent would bruise his heel. This is a glimpse of the coming Christ, our hope. This is a shadow of what was to come that we were given a promise of hope. 
that God's plan isn't to simply destroy creation, but that he will save it from the effects of sin. He will save it from the disruption of shalom. And immediately after the fall, God declares his rescue plan for humanity. What was done in the garden would be undone by Christ. See, God planned to send his son to live a perfect life and to be an example for us as he gave up his life in order to save ours. Christ would be the one to restore shalom to all of our relationships. He would restore it and be an example for us. So how does he do that? How does Christ restore our shalom? First, he restores our relationship with God. You see, we are guilty of sin because our forefather, our representative, Adam, made a choice. He made a choice to sin. We are also guilty because we make daily choices to sin. We make daily choices to be our own gods, daily choices to worship things other than God, to disobey what God has called us to do. We make daily choices to serve others other than God, worship others. And we needed a new representative to stand for us. We need someone else that could make a different choice, make a different choice and submit to the Father. And Jesus submitted his entire life, his entire life to the Father. He lived a perfect, sinless life and was obedient to the point of death. And then Jesus faced the wrath of God, the wrath that we deserved from a just and holy God. He faced it by being beaten and crucified on the cross. See, Jesus was our substitute, taking what we deserved, taking upon himself the punishment for our sins. I want to read a a passage here. It's on the screen. Romans 5, 18 through 19. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So this is God, this is Jesus taking God's punishment for us, our new representative, the second Adam as we, we sometimes call him making things right, making a choice to submit to the will of the Father. And see, this, because of what Jesus has done, when we put our faith, when we put our trust in him, we're no longer the objects of God's wrath. We're no longer the objects of what God would be righteous to punish us. We're no longer the objects of that punishment. Jesus satisfied that in himself. And instead, we become the objects of God's love and God's blessing. Jesus has restored our shalom with the Father. Secondly, Jesus restores our relationship with ourselves. Ephesians 
1, verse 5, says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. This idea of, of adoption, I think this is significant because God didn't have to adopt us as sons in order to save us. He didn't have to choose to make us his children. He didn't have to decide to love us. He didn't have to take us in and make us family. But out of his love, out of who he was, he chose to do so. It was his will to do that. See, in Genesis 1, we're told that we were made in the likeness and the image of God. That we're image bearers and that we're his children. And what this means is that we have worth because God declares that we have worth. Because God made us to be his image bearers. And I want you to hear this this morning. This is the ultimate being in the universe. This is God saying to us individually, you are mine and you are loved. You are mine and you are loved. And what this means is that we can stop hustling for our worth through performance. This means we can stop comparing ourselves to others where the world says we're worthy because of what we achieve, because of what we do, because of how much money we make. God says we're worthy because we exist and because he has declared us worthy. He has chosen us. And that helps, that fixes shalom in us. Thirdly, Jesus restores shalom in our relationship with each other. Jesus gave us the ultimate example of self-sacrificing love. He was the most unselfish person to have ever lived. He gave up his life in order to save others. And he calls us to love one another as he loved us. So I'm going to read from 1 John chapter 3. Verse 16, it says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So this is God's call for, to sacrifice for the good of our neighbor, for our good of our brother and our sister, serving one another and carrying one another's burdens as Christ forgave and served us. The God came, the God of the universe came and humbled himself as a, as a human being and gave up some of his ability, some of his, what he could do. He gave those things up in order to be human, to live as a human, to live in, in that weakness that comes with being human. God humbled himself. And this helps us to see the example of how we should love and serve others. As we seek to be a blessing to the people in Oklahoma that have suffered tremendous loss, that as a church we should gather around them and love them and serve them and give, be generous to them, to help them. And in doing so, we imitate Christ. In the garden, there was no competition for resources. 
And God calls us to live now as things were in the garden, in that self-sacrificing mutuality where we partner together and serve one another. This also has to do with, with forgiveness. So think about a relationship that you might have where there's conflict, where there's strife, where there's unforgiveness, either on your part or on someone else's part. Maybe you've sinned against someone, or maybe someone has sinned against you. And this hurts. This is painful. And we have to ask, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? And God gives us an example that we are to love and we are to forgive. As Christ forgave us, we're to forgive others. Not because the other person deserves it, or not because we deserve to be forgiven, but because Christ does it because that's who he is. That's part of his character. So we're called to imitate that and serve each other in that. Lastly, Jesus gives us hope for a restored shalom of creation. We see the brokenness of creation as we looked at the images in the video of the tragedy in Moore, Oklahoma this past week. We see the picture of a city devastated by a tornado, and it stirs something in our hearts. It stirs something that says, this isn't right. This isn't the way that things should be. Many of us know the pain of losing a loved one due to an illness or an accident. We watch the news and we see reports of famine, earthquake, other tragedies, and we grieve. And we long for something better as we see that this is not how things are supposed to be. Well, God's promise to us is that one day he will restore all things. He will restore all of creation. See, the good news is that Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death, the consequence of Adam and Eve's sin, the consequence of our sin. He died for that to give us eternal life. And we know from Scripture that Jesus did many miracles. Um, We see him demonstrating his authority over nature. He gives us a glimpse of the restored creation as he healed the sick, as he calmed the storms, and as he fed the hungry. He gives us a glimpse of the way things were supposed to be, of his work of restoring things to the way they were intended. And God promises us in one day it will be as it was in Eden. I want you to turn with me, if you would, to Revelation. This is the book all the way to the right, the last book, page 1041. And this, this passage is going to paint for us a picture of what, what the end result will be of God's work of restoration. And I want you to think about what is your, um, what do you think about when you think of heaven, when you think of God's work of restoration? Do you think of disembodied spirits in, in a land somewhere else, in, in heaven, on, on clouds, um, where we all just float around and play harps? And I want you to, to challenge, I want to challenge that this morning. That's not the picture that's being communicated to us here. This is a picture of restored creation. This is a picture of us living in wholeness 
in fullness with our bodies in perfect creation. Starting at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. You see, God's plan is to set things right and restore creation back to the harmony that was experienced in Eden. No more death, no more crying, no more pain. That we will be fully known and we will be the people, we will be God's people in God's place, dwelling with Him. Shalom will be restored. So what does this mean for us now? What do we do with this? Where do we go with this? See, as Christ followers, if you put your faith and your trust in in Jesus Christ, we get to experience a foretaste of what's to come. That we get restored relationship with the Father, and we we get it now. We have access to the Father. We get to experience His favor and His love through Christ. We get to experience it now, not because of anything we've done or anything we didn't do, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And when we put our faith in Christ, God gives us a spirit that works in our hearts to help us to imitate his selfless and God-honoring character of Christ. He empowers us to live out the way he created us to live. And so I want to invite you this morning, if you're not sure that you believe all of the stuff about Jesus Christ, about who he says he is, that he died for, for our sins, he died for your sins, died for my sins, and that he rose again, I want to invite you to believe that. I want to invite you to ask those hard questions about what you believe, to consider, is this true? What is God speaking to me through this? So I want to invite you to just pray about that as we respond later this morning. Search your heart. There are going to be some leaders at the back that would, would love to talk with you, love to pray with you, and explore that. This is a safe place for you to explore that and question your doubts. And if you're, if you're a believer that has put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, I want to ask, how can we imitate God by serving our neighbors? How can we love others as Christ loved and served us? See, the invitation is for us to invite others into the shalom and the way of living that God intended. Wholeness in our lives and our relationships where we forgive one another, where we work together, where we're selfless, where we partner together, serving one another and that we hold on to the promise of complete shalom and restored creation, that that is God's promise for us, that as we look around, we experience the pain and the suffering and the brokenness that's all around us, that we can live with the peace that God gives us 
that is unexplainable, that while we still grieve and while we still experience the pain, we know that God's presence is with us. And God has called the church to be a force against that brokenness, to begin his work of restoration, to begin what he has initiated, and to imitate his character and who he is. I want to read another passage this morning. It's on page 978. It's Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the Apostle Paul who wrote, wrote this book is saying, calling us to be imitators of God, to imitate his character, to imitate his love, to imitate who he is. So he's giving us a command to say, be imitators. And notice what he says next. He says, as beloved children. This isn't be imitators so that you will gain God's favor, so that you will gain God's approval, so that you can earn your way to heaven. It says, imitate me because you are my children, because you are my son, because you are my daughter, because I love you. So that we imitate from that place of security in our relationship with God in knowing that he loves us, in knowing that our worth isn't based upon our performance, knowing that our worth isn't based about if we read our Bible every day, although it's a good thing to do that. We should read our Bible because we love it and because we want to and because we know the God who wrote it. So it's not about our performance. It's about imitating God from a place of assurance place of our identity in him. And this enables us to forgive others. So think about this morning. Who is maybe a person in your life that you're struggling to forgive? You're struggling to have peace and shalom with? You're struggling to have connection with? Where might God speak into that situation? Where might God use you convey the gospel to that person as you seek to forgive them. And I know that's that's a hard task often because forgiveness often comes with pain. Many of you may have been hurt deeply by someone else, by someone else's sin against you and against God. And I want you to know God grieves with you in that. God says, I am working to restore. I am working to rid the world of that. And he invites us to be a part of it. So where is God inviting us to shalom this morning in our relationship with others? Where might we we be doubting our relationship with him? And God is inviting us into that relationship and saying, you have shalom with me. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to live out of it. So we can stop thinking that God disapproves of us. We can stop thinking that we have to do something in order to earn his favor and live with the knowledge that we already have it and enjoy our relationship with him. And it also means God provides for us. Shalom. I'm going to read another passage. It's from Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. 
It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known, made known to God. This is God telling us that like he provided for Adam and Eve in the garden, God will provide for us. We may not see here on earth the abundance like was in the garden or the beauty, but God says, I will take care of you. You are my child. And in the hard stuff, in the midst of suffering, I will be there with you, and I will take you through it. And that is our invitation to shalom this morning. And we can only experience that through Christ. We desperately need him because we can't do it on our own. We can't experience it on our own.